0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Marc Hardy, and today we're going to look at third-party risk management. We also have a special guest as part of this topic, Scott Fairbrother from Down Under, whom we'll hear from in a bit, so you don't have to listen to me talk the whole time. As always, please subscribe to our podcast follow us on LinkedIn, and share with your fellow security leaders. In today's digital world, it's very common to use third-party applications. Just think about how many organizations send sensitive data outside their borders to places like Salesforce, Microsoft 365, GitHub, ServiceNow, Jira, Dropbox, Workday, QuickBooks... Yeah, you could go on and on. Companies can outsource your company's data. You can't outsource the accountability for keeping your company's data secure. Let me repeat that. As a CISO, you cannot outsource accountability. That's why it's important to use a third-party risk management solution. Now, On today's episode, we want you to listen to and understand three important questions. Number one, how do you identify which vendors pose the highest risk to your business? Could you answer that to the satisfaction of your executive team right now? Number two, how do you see which vendors security controls protect against threats? And how do you validate their risk profiles by scanning or dark web monitoring or some other technique that correlates to what attackers are seeing and acting upon? And then number three, do you have an understanding of how to improve risk mitigation in your third party ecosystem. Now these are not trivial questions because let's start out with taking a look at some recent stuff that's happened last year or so. A Volkswagen Group of America, which includes Audi, lost 3.3 million records as a result of a third party vendor that left their information exposed for twenty one months, all the way up to about May of twenty twenty one. General Electric lost over two hundred thousand records of employee data. And Healthcare organization Orgason had a report of public data breach when a laptop was stolen from a contractor facility. And then online services like Instagram and YouTube, hundreds of millions of records from a social media data broker named Deep Social that went out of business as a result of this. And for those who like to travel, Expedia, Hotels.com lost over 10 million customer records when its third-party prestige software left its, left its data in an S3 bucket and yeah, left it public. This and this could go on and on with these things. So this is not a make believe type of a problem. This exists right now. Great Horn conducted a survey of 250 U.S. cybersecurity pros in March and reported in their supply chain cyber attack report, which just came out in July of 2021. 58 percent of organizations reported they experienced some attempted supply chain attack last year. 76 percent have supply chain cyber attack mitigation plans. Mm. Are you part of that? Are you part of the 24% who don't? How about this? 80% require vendors and suppliers to implement a security framework. All right, what framework do you require your vendors to implement? Okay, if you don't have an instant answer like that, you need to keep listening. And then of organizations that fell victim to attack, 79% of them, suffered financial damage with an average of over $6 million for the loss. Now, what we're seeing is third parties create risks to companies in multiple ways. Strategic risk, of course, uh, from a perspective of mergers and acquisitions, it turns out that something goes horribly wrong or could throw the price off. For those of us who remember Verizon's purchase of Yahoo, and then after the deal went through, Yahoo said, oh, yeah, by the way, um, we lost, about 3 billion records. Does that kind of affect the deal? Oh, yeah. Reputational risk. As You end up with potential lawsuits against the brands of the third parties and customers just saying, hey, I don't want to deal with them because of that. Operational risk. Disaster recovery, business continuity plans don't work anymore because of the fact that something is outside of your control that you depend upon. The legal risk the terms and conditions of the contract, and of course somebody lawyering up on you for that one, compliance risk with respect to regulatory requirements, and of course the information security risk on data privacy and protection. Don't forget, there's a financial risk that goes along with all of these. Willis Towers Watson analyzed the cyber insurance industry to identify the most common root cause of cyber attacks. And the study found the most common attack type was phishing at 29%. Second most common attack type was security breach of third parties, which is 24%. Hmm. Now, we probably have programs in place to work with phishing. I don't know of any self-respecting CISA who doesn't have something in place. It could be security awareness training, periodic phishing exercises. But we do something to ensure that our users who can click on things, open stuff, find USB drives and insert them, Don't do dumb stuff. Well, if that's at 29% and third parties are 24%, that's roughly a quarter of all the cyber attacks are third-party data breaches. And therefore, we need to provide that same level of rigor as we do for phishing controls. For example, today, most organizations will do your monthly phishing exercises. You'll teach your users about that. But do you have a monthly contact contact? with your users to ensure they follow your third-party risk management program? Do you contact your third parties on a regular basis to see how they're doing? Now, we don't want to go ahead and create sort of a nanny state. You're not going to be trying to tell them how to run their business. I certainly don't want one of my customers trying to tell me how to do my job. But I do need to provide them with a level of confidence and assurance that I am doing my job. And I'm doing my job well enough that we're controlling risk to an acceptable level. See, perhaps the biggest need for third party risk management is establishing due care. When we think about that, in the event of a large data breach, lawyers, regulators, investors all look at a company for the possibility of negligence. And if you didn't meet best practices, external entities are going to sue or place a punishment, try to harm your company or resources. And therefore, your security teams constantly need to show that they performed at a reasonable level of due diligence to safeguard sensitive data. Now, for example, today, it's quite common to use a questionnaire to look at vendor risk. For example, the Consensus Assessment Initiative Questionnaire, or CAIQ, is that pronounced cake? Maybe. From the Cloud Security Alliance, is a free questionnaire used to identify best practices, which are commonly used. And each questionnaire puts the vendors through a series of detailed questions that determine deficiencies in their cyber practices. And if a deficiency is identified, then organizations need to either accept, reject, transfer, or mitigate that risk that's posed by that potential problem or threat. Another key aspect we see companies doing is asking for a third party review. Essentially, companies are incentivized to earn your business, so they could create cyber policies as a response to a standardized information gathering, or SIG, or a cake, without really implementing them. Remember, it doesn't help if your patch policy says, we patch in 30 days, if no one's following it. And so, therefore, companies also and often may ask for third party reviews, external reviews of your third parties to ensure due diligence. Now, some examples might include an ISO 27001 report, a SOC 2 Type 2, or the result of a pen test. And some organizations make these generally available to their customers and even prospective customers when they ask for it. I've done that as part of due diligence where I go to a company and they said, oh yeah, here's your SOC 2 Type 2. And boom, you get the whole report. I get to read it as a CISO, as the expert, and then come back to my management team and say, yay, verily, I don't see any major risk problems as of the date this report was written yeah and of course you got to qualify it that way too because there's a problem later on they come back to you and said hey you said this was good but he said yeah it was good on the date of that particular pen test or that particular report so keep that in mind it's a fluid situation now companies can also be performing some sort of security scan on a vendor Uh, you could look at a public website for vulnerabilities now again without poking in there and breaking into stuff there's certain things that you can scan externally, that don't require permission. It's certainly well within the law and well within reasonable nature. For example, if you connect to a public website and there's insecure versions of JavaScript being turned up, or they use deprecated versions of TLS, or worse, SSL 3.0, then it might be logical to assume the internal products may be bad as well, or could be even worse. Now, in addition to compliance, we also need to think about third-party risk management is an enabler of effective risk management. I mean, for example, if I had a hundred different vendors with different types of risks, how do I document and track each of them so I don't miss any remediation activities? I mean, for example, let's say my vendor didn't have SAML authentication currently, but promised you that you would deliver this feature within three months. Now, who or what? Person or tool or process in your organization is responsible for tracking this event to make sure it becomes implemented on that particular month and then validates that. Now, here's another thought if a vendor discloses a public data breach, how would you know? I mean, if you did know, would you immediately cut off their access to your network? What if this IT service company had VPN access to service your critical data? And then Are we collecting and collating all this data that we have from hundreds of assessments? And can we identify which third party is the potential weakest link of the supply chain and showing vulnerabilities that could be exploited by, I don't know, something like ransomware? Remember, if you fail to take timely action on cyber risks, you could be held negligent to your stakeholders, or at least considered that way. And that's usually bad enough. We need to use risk assessments on third-party vendors to tell our executive management which vendors pose the highest risk to our organizations. Now, every business has to take some risks. It's part of the game. But cyber and doing our job effectively is about allowing our leaders to make informed risk-based decisions. It's up to cybersecurity to inform the business how big the risk is, how expensive it gets when it goes bad. What steps could be taken to reduce the risk? And how much does it cost to remediate the risk when possible? Remember, effective cyber offers the organization revenue protection. You want to enhance your organization's ability and agility through digital transformation. So finding comprehensive ways to create visibility on risks allows your management and your leadership team to stay informed. Okay, as I promised, I'd like to introduce you now to somebody who's been looking at this problem space for an extended period of time, someone whom I think has some great lessons learned to share with us. So let's go ahead and go over to the interview portion of our show. And today I'm privileged to have in our, well, virtual studios, because he's coming to us from Australia, Scott Fairbrother from Telstra. Um, Scott, glad to have you on the show. And can you tell me a little bit about your background?
1: Thank you, G-Mark. Uh, yes, well, I started out in, I guess, the telecom space, mainly around transmission switching, radio, satellite engineering. Uh, moved into sort of product engineering role. Uh, while I was doing that, I, as a, a very young and naive fellow up for a challenge, I joined the Army Reserves and got into signals and probably first had my exposure to crypto uh, in those days in a very manual way way Uh, soon joined security operations within Telstra uh, moved into the consulting area spent a lot of time as an enterprise security architect working for government and enterprise customers globally and now back into a security operations role again um, with a main focus on what we call partner security so basically third-party risk management hmm interesting now you said you work for Telstra
0: by the way um, just in front of the audience, this is our fourth take on the interview because the first three kept dying because of bandwidth. And uh, so Scott went to his Telstra mobile and it's working beautifully. So two thumbs up there for your company. This is going to give you, you know, we're not plugging them, but if you're in Australia, that's, I guess, the firm to have.
1: I would like to think I'm working for the right telco. So yes, they've, uh, they've done me proud on this session. Thanks, Jim. Well done. Yeah, and again, thank you for the background because uh, you've done a lot.
0: And that's important because I love having people on the show who've got a lot of experience with a lot of different areas and things such as that. And as you'd mentioned, your responsibility over there on third-party security, which is interesting because we've been talking about that for the first part of the show. I mean, vendor risk, isn't exactly a new risk. You know, the cloud's fairly new, we're figuring stuff out, but, but vendor risk, risk has been around for decades, really, but what is it about vendor risk that makes it so hard for
1: organizations to solve? Uh, it's, it's, it's always, I and mean, there's a lot of similarities, certainly with vendor risk, and ultimately, in cybersecurity all comes back to our assets. So, you know, what assets are we trying to protect? Um, how are we trying to manage where our information and facilities are? How are we managing who has access to that information and facilities? So with third parties and in our space, so we'd like to term use that term partners. So for us as an organisation, third parties mean anything from the customer right through to the manufacturer. So any entity or organisation that has an involvement with Telstra, that shares our information or accesses our facilities. So because of all of those third-party interactions, we're obviously going to have less control over some of those assets. So third-party access extends that perimeter. It potentially weakens those trust boundaries that we have in place beyond the firewall. It increases our data footprint and therefore it's increasing our threat profile. So. The key, I guess, for us is to understand what those third-party relationships are and aim to manage those relationships so that we understand what they're doing with our assets.
0: Yeah, and that's an interesting challenge because I don't think any organization can be, can do everything themselves. And as a result, we tend to look over to the our, our partners, as you had said, third parties who will be doing things for various levels of complexity, either from operational details like a, a managed security service provider to a handling all the sensitive information about our customers, our employees, our financials, et cetera. So there's a lot out there that we end up having to essentially share. And I think part of the difficulty is from managing that is that you could go in and you can take a snapshot of what does your security look like? And they may look quite, well, you know, nice. But as you had said, from your army experience, you, you all know what happens when the general's coming. Everybody gets themselves all polished up for an inspection. It looks great. And then the next day it's back to normal again. Um, so any ideas that you might have in terms of, you know, companies doing more to safeguard themselves about third-party risks and you can't really inspect them every single day?
1: You're correct. You, you do have to have your eyes on the ball all of the time. You need to have a broad view of about what your relationships are. Most organisations can't do business without some involvement of third parties. So, uh, you know, as a, a service provider, you might rely on lots of different vendors providing support to the services that you're offering to customers. Uh, as a you know retail organisation, you're reliant on the supply chain uh, for the products that you sell. So we all have relationships with third parties. Sometimes those third parties are enforced relationships. And so, you know, things like our regulatory environment. So we do need to understand what those exposures are. I guess coming back to, you know, risk management, it's you start with the assets. So I like to think it's about understanding the who, what, where, why, how and when. So who are your partners? Getting a handle on who those partners are is probably the biggest challenge an organisation going to have. Uh, what do they have access to? So think about what facilities physically you might have partners accessing. What data do they need to access to assist you in? What they're doing for your business uh, think about where those partners are located because that will translate to where your data is don't forget the data sovereignty requirements that we have across the globe obviously in some countries there's a whole aspect called extrajudicial ju- direction and that's where a, a company or a, a government has a right over a company to access their data. So there are certain areas throughout the globe that we need to be a little bit careful of in terms of where that data ends up because we might lose control. We may have no legal recourse in terms of where that data ends up. Have a think about how the those third parties are accessing that data. What sort of technology do they use? are they using vpns are they using appropriate multi-factor authentication on their endpoint clients are you protecting your data stream and once it ends up somewhere within that third party's organization do they have the appropriate controls across their enterprise to manage your data Ideally, you know, the 101 of risk management, you try and eliminate the risk wherever possible. So if you can reduce where that data footprint is by putting requirements on your third parties, by putting technical controls in place, then that's ultimately where you want to get to. It's difficult to, I guess, sometimes get a big picture of what that looks like without assistance from services that might help you do that job better than what you can internally. Have a think about under what situations those third parties are accessing your data, how much of that can be locked down. We have a view, and you know I guess my my view is that it's a partner ecosystem. It's not just a sequential supply chain. So think of it as a multi-dimensional, multi-directional ecosystem with your upstream suppliers right through to your downstream customers and also those sidestream relationships with the regulators i mentioned with your industry peers as an organization if you're undergoing mergers and acquisitions with other organizations we need to be doing appropriate due diligence with those m&a targets as well have a think about your sales channels and your distributors what information do they have from you to help you sell your services but also vice vice versa what information from your customers do they retain and how do they manage that information and lastly think about how the risks associated with those relationships how they need to be managed at a business level so as a cybersecurity organisation, I like to think we're here as a service provider In within our organisation. We're here to provide that expertise back to our stakeholders. So whether that's the board or leadership in a government organisation, the business needs to have that buy-in. It isn't just a security problem. So it really needs that top-down approach. And that's probably one of the The major challenges of a a third-party risk management program to have that business buy-in. So you've got the budget to do what you need to do.
0: That's interesting. So it's a lot more complex than it it sounds at first, because as you look at managing that risk function, I mean, most people tend to think about risk monolithically as money, but there's a lot more to it than that. I heard you mentioned a couple of things, regulatory risk, making sure that with respect to things such as data sovereignty and ensuring that we're complying there, reputational risk. uh, That's a big deal because you can't really go to your customers and say, well, don't blame me. My third party screwed it up. So you should still love me and do business with me. Don't worry, we'll get a better third party next time. Uh, It doesn't work. And so what happens is, is that one of the things that I tell people is that you cannot delegate out that accountability for risk. You can't outsource that. Uh, that's something that must stay in-house. And, and therefore, being able to have an effective program is a, is a huge deal. And I think even more so as we look at, any, at a bigger threat that's out there, nation-states going in there, moving in into some areas in terms of perhaps outright espionage, uh, let alone the traditional, usual cast of characters uh, that are grabbing stuff and trying to make it off with things, as well as just, of course, human error that takes place out there, and it's always going to you know, occur. And so from that perspective, then, you had mentioned that you really kind of needed perhaps somebody else out there to help you out with this ecosystem. And there's a number of third-party risk solutions in this space. Is there anything that CISOs need to consider when selecting a vendor in this space?
1: Oh, definitely. And, and just, I guess, to touch on that brand management, I think a lot of organizations default to the legal structure. So we generally have contracts in place with our third parties. But that's really just a, a fallback position so you do need to be able to have some skin in the game and do this correctly you do need to focus on the controls beyond just the administrative controls like contracts you can try and do this yourself as an organization and depending on the size of the organization i think you know as a very small organization you generally don't have the security specialists you don't have the the dollars to scale in terms of people to throw at this problem. As a very large organisation, you might have more people and you might have more skills, but then you've also potentially got hundreds or thousands of more third-party relationships. So the the challenge magnifies. So, you know, as an organisation, we tried to do it ourselves and soon realised that to do it properly, to do that appropriate due diligence, When you're onboarding those third parties and to manage it as an ongoing program, you just couldn't scale to do that. So you do need to look at other options. The key is visibility. How can you possibly scale enough to maintain visibility of all of your partners, not just when you're onboarding through the procurement process, but also as an ongoing checkpoint in terms of a program so how do you maintain your risk posture with those organizations there's obviously lots of options out there in terms of third-party services that can help you know there's the, the large consultant firms they can come in and kind of do the lot for you but then you lose that intellectual property to them you don't have that level of awareness or engagement often into the rest of your business. There's lots of GRC tool options and they're they're useful and and important to leverage in terms of your risk management program, but can they do the extra bits in terms of third party risk? There's risk scoring services. So there's a lot of outside in uh, scanning engines and services that can give you a, a rating. That's also an important component to your program, but in itself, it's probably not enough. So what we're looking for is an integrated service combining all of those. You need to be able to combine that uh, into your partner security framework. Now, Tool's not going to fix it alone, and a service on itself is not going to fix it alone. You do need to have that framework, and I know one of your earlier podcasts was certainly all about frameworks and I would you know think that you need to be integrating into a typical NIST or ISO type framework most of those industry standards will have control domains covering third party risk management so when you're looking for a service look for something that integrates the assessment activity integrates the open source intelligence information that is available from the dark web provides a platform that allows you to access the results of all of those activities and all of that information and is mappable back into your existing framework so it can be integrated. It's not just something you use in isolation. It's something that forms a key component of your security framework.
0: Right. So what I'm hearing then is three different types of players in the market. The larger consulting companies, they can use your version of the questionnaire. They'll go out perform audits and assessments, workflow tools like GRC systems, you can upload a questionnaire and then have someone go chase down the assessments or risk ranking companies. They're gonna rely on doing their own scanning. They're gonna come up with the information, etc. Now, one of the things that I have found as a CISO is that I will get somebody in the business will say, Hey G Mark, we got to have this thing filled out by tomorrow or Friday or something like that. And I look at it and it's this multi-page long security questionnaire. Do you have this? Do you do that? And it's unique. I mean, every time it's just a little bit different than the one before. And I just like to have something I'd say like, hey, let me just cut and paste what I sent to the last guy, but nope, I got to roll up my sleeves because our job as CISOs is to support the business. We want to make sure that things get done effectively. So, okay, here we go, and, and off we run. But that's a lot of extra work. So then, now this only happens once in a while because one of the things that I'm kind of wondering is, is that you know you're with a larger organization, and so there's probably a gap between the number of, suppliers that you actually do this due diligence on and the ones that you're actually relying upon how how big is this gap from the number of companies that we typically are actually taking a close look
1: at You spot on g mark i think until we really looked at the numbers and had to think about what we were doing we probably didn't realize and most companies probably go through this process you don't realize how many different relationships you have as an organization Most of us probably start with the very typical supply relationship. So we have procurement, we have a process to assess new vendors or new suppliers. We go through that procurement cycle, we do some due diligence and it very much is a a supplier consumer relationship, but it's not just suppliers that have access to your data as an organisation. Your customers even can have access to your data, so where where you're a large service provider you might be you might have enterprise b2b processes or connections in place where you're sharing information you know as a as a service provider of managed services you might be providing information feeds to your customer they might be getting access to your systems to see the progress of could be anything could be progress of orders it could be the progress of an incident that's being managed a fault that they've raised so there's always going to be information sharing so even customers potentially can be involved in exposing your data or at least very at least accessing your data so once you start thinking about all those different relationships We talked about regulators before, they're gonna have obligated access or regulatory access in terms of your data so that they can do their job. You're gonna have regulatory reporting obligations. We have relationships with our mergers and acquisitions. So we're gonna be sharing data in terms of that due diligence process. So the size of your partner ecosystem suddenly starts to get very large. And I, I would think that, you know, if you're a typical supplier relationship, you might be looking at assessing maybe 5 to 10% of those traditional suppliers, which is very small. You need to start thinking about, yeah, all of those other things. you probably heard the term shadow IT. Well, there's definitely shadow procurement. It's very can be relatively trivial for someone in an organisation, especially a very large organisation, to go out there and buy an instance on the cloud by their credit card and claim it as an expense. And then every month pay that off. How do you possibly pick that up? So we started, certainly it was the best we could think of at the time. Start with your accounts payable report. Pull a, a report from your financial systems to find out where the money's going. And then start with there. It won't be everything and it won't pick up absolutely every version of relationship you might have, but it's a really good start. And then you can go through and whittle that down. Think about the chunks that you need to deal with, you know, bite-sized pieces. So, for instance, supplies is a nice one. That's a nice easy one to start with. Think about your top spend. So who do you spend the most money with? Are they the most critical to your business? Do you rely, how much do you rely on them? Start with those suppliers and then work your way through your various other relationships. I mean, this, this sounds like a huge challenge. If we were down at the
0: 5 or 10% level, I mean, you know, as you're mentioning that, which I'm thinking of, it's like seatbelts in 1955. They weren't required. And in fact, I think you had to pay extra if you wanted to put them in your car And yet today we can see a significant improvement in highway safety because of the presence of this type of control. So this control, which looks to be largely absent, is one where I guess we've been driving around for years now without really having a good handle on this problem. And with the increase in the data protection regulations, both GDPR, for example, in Europe kicking into May of 2018, United States, California Consumer Privacy Act is kicking in on 2020. And then there's going to be other jurisdictions around the world that are all going to have their own versions. This is now, we're not going to get a pass on it anymore. This is something that has to be addressed effectively by organizations. And because the failure of a third party, a partner, our ecosystem, whatever, results in a data breach, typically... Uh, or an outage maybe if they get, if they just lose your data and you can't get it back and you can't deliver, this falls squarely on the CISO, although we might not have been thinking about this in the past, which means that we're gonna to have to probably look for third party tools and things like that. I mean, what, how do you see this space evolving?
1: You're right, Mark. and look, I don't, maybe I've made it sound a lot more scary than it is. Look, it probably is scary, but like anything large, you know, trying to have a bite of an elephant. You need to start with the bite-sized chunks. So start with the things you have to do. So what are your biggest exposures? Certainly regulatory, there's some regulatory obligations. So as you touched on GDPR, PCI DSS, uh, if you're going through an ISO 27001 certification or you're complying with NIST, If you've got customers that expect you to meet certain standards, that's as good a place as anywhere to start in terms of understanding what the challenge is and how you might prioritise various aspects of your third-party risk management programme. Look at your biggest spend. So work out what supplies you rely on the most to stay in business because ultimately without those third parties, you won't stay in business. So you need to prioritize those. That's all part of that supply chain. Where this is moving to, as an organization, you might have a lot of customers. A lot of your customers will expect to see some level of due diligence as an organization yourself, plus with your third parties. How do you possibly share that information in a scalable sense you touched on before about filling out hundreds of spreadsheets, in response to customers requesting information about your security posture. You can use a service like an exchange type service that's used those assessments. You can fill one of those out yourself and use it as like a do once use many approach without having to fill out multiple spreadsheets. I think as an industry, as many industries, we are all in this together. So we all need to work together to scale to meet this problem. Throwing spreadsheets around amongst ourselves is not gonna help that. So we need to learn to work a little bit more smarter. Much of the data is available out there, but it is fairly selectively shared. So we might have a customer that asks us to fill out their security questionnaire. We fill that out, send it back to them. But how do we reuse that? So we've obviously got the data in the first place. How can we share that in many different forms to our other customers that want that same sort of information? So you need to look for a service that allows you to consolidate that data, correlate it into a form that can be then presented or mapped against a customer's requirements many customers certainly enterprise customers out there will align to you know the typical frameworks whether it's NIST or ISO or they've got a PCI DSS requirement or GDPR requirement so you need to look for a service that allows you to map that data put it into responses aligned to those standards and that's that's the way we've done it you'll always get those customers that want us to fill out bespoke questionnaires and you can't prevent that but generally when we're responding to those requests we'll say look here's our assessment in a standard form we can map it to any of your standards try that first if you've got more information that you need us to provide you we can do that as a secondary thing and we're seeing a lot more like of our customers are accepting that if we've got a standard response that covers All of those control categories align to a uh, a framework like NIST or ISO. Generally, that meets their requirements. Yeah,
0: I like that. I mean, you're almost flicking back onto the person who gave you this long questionnaire and saying, well, actually, um, our standard trumps your standard because we're using an international one. What are you using?
1: That's right. And I think it helps to sell the message or spread the word a little bit better in terms of their... Are better ways for us to do this so it's you know it can be frustrating especially when you're responding to a, an rfp as an organization when that that cust potential customer sends you their internal standards and say, you must comply with these. Well, in a lot of cases, yes, they're in your internal standards. So our security posture and our profiling is different. We need to put it in the framework of an industry standard aligned to the services that we're going to be offering. And I guess that's key. So understanding the security posture of your third party and the specific relationship you have with them will then frame what that risk looks like. And that'll help to drive your risk profiling that needs to meet your risk appetite. So context is key to all of this. I think something else that we're probably starting to see that will be useful is how do we leverage all of this third party data, how do we leverage that in terms of an incident response? So if we have a zero day attack, how can we go out there and drill down to our third parties and understand what our third party exposure might be. Which of those third parties didn't stack up so well in things like patch management or vulnerability management, or even didn't have the best handle on their assets? Because with obviously, without understanding your assets, you're not gonna be able to patch them effectively. So things like a zero day attack, if you can find a service that allows you to filter against that particular control category, that will, that will give you a heads up in terms of where your risk might be. You can start having conversations with those third parties. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's, I, I think you've hit on something that's really key, such as if something goes wrong, how far downstream or even from upstream did the problem. I mean, we've seen things, solar winds and other types of issues where supply chain attacks that could then get to second and third order effects. And one of the things that we'd like to do, I would think, is have that pretty good understanding of, well, actually better than a good understanding, have a, a solid understanding of, of what your third parties are doing and where they stand. Now, the hard part often is, is that if you set a very high bar for doing this, we would probably never find anybody who qualifies. And that was some of the early issues way back when when they set up some security standards is it turns out that to be able to fully comply with the standard, you couldn't get any work done because everything was being controlled. And therefore, there needs to be some sort of a reference point, if you will, a benchmark, something that says, hey, how good is good enough? What is it that represents a sufficient level of, if you will, accomplishment That gives us a feel that our risk is acceptable. Now, granted, there's always going to be some risk, but there probably should be some sort of a reference point at which point we say, this is defensible. To get beyond this, if something goes wrong, it wasn't an everyday event. It was something like you said, a zero day, very difficult, Well, you can't really prevent against them. You can just detect and respond fast. Uh, But what are your thoughts from the, the, the perspective of setting some sort of standard or benchmark?
1: You definitely need to align to a standard. As you know, for for good business, we all have shareholders, we have taxpayers, if you're a government entity, we have an obligation to manage risks associated with any transaction. The maturity can be measured against an industry standard. So look for things that will align or point to those industry standards. As an organization you would go out there look at third parties you're probably familiar with magic quadrant analysis that'll help you with vendor selection around features and performance but what about the security performance of those vendors how do you actually measure that how do we compare with the security posture of those vendors amongst themselves so you need to look for a service that allows you to map against those standards but also presents OSINT data, so data from the dark web, combines that with assessment data, ideally rated against the maturity level, um, against those control categories, and that ultimately maps to those industry standards. Without that, you can't compare. So the standards, I guess, gives you that baseline comparison. If you can find a service that allows you to map their responses from their assessments to those standards, you're in the best position of understanding what that risk posture might be and you can work with your third parties to increase their maturity it's it's not necessarily a black and white uh, outcome so you know we have lots of suppliers that are different levels of maturity and depending on what they're offering or providing to you as a service you might accept the lower maturity so for instance your supplier of stationery Unless they're going to supply you some sort of whiz bang smart pen that could infiltrate your network and copy data generally pens and papers and things like that you're not going to expect the same level of cybersecurity maturity. As opposed to a cloud provider where you're putting a lot of your core information assets, so you do need to understand that relationship, as I said that context, because that will then drive the risk appetite that you're. Going to be comfortable with each individual uh, relationship.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting because if you think about it from the perspective of a vendor, a seller, someone who is a, like a software company or something like that, and what you have is a situation where I'm trying to think of a good way to put this you really don't want to have to do custom assessments every time you make a deal, right? And so from that perspective, uh,
1: how How do you go ahead and do that? how do we how do we make this happen? you You need some common language, and I guess the common language is your typical security standards. But going back to that example that I had around the stationary supplier, you might decide that it's low enough risk in terms of information exposed. you don't need to put them through a full full third party risk management program. But you might do the basics, so you do that kind of outside in passive analysis. You might have information where that is available in the dark web that will be fine for your risk appetite in terms of assessing their maturity. You may not need to go through the full assessment path. With a software vendor, for instance, you might want to focus on certain elements of that service in providing software to you. So for software, as you said, that supply chain in terms of how that software gets to you and how it's updated. So the whole secure software development lifecycle control category that's probably going to be your main focus. How do they patch? How do they maintain development activity? Are they releasing regular hot fixes or regular patches to security vulnerabilities? Do they have a good program uh, to you know, develop additional controls in their software, release that on a regular basis? So you might have a strong focus on your software development lifecycle for that particular vendor, as opposed to, some other control categories, which may not necessarily be relevant to that relationship. So you do need to focus in order to scale. It kind of sounds contradictory, but unless you understand the specific relationships with those organizations, you you most likely can't do everything for everyone at the same level.
0: Yeah, it's so, yeah, I guess you do the best you can with what you've got. So... I don't know. Any other final thoughts here as we wrap up things that you think people might want to understand? I mean, you keep mentioning on finding a solution and I think it's okay to mention if you,
1: if you found something that does work. I mean, this is obviously not an infomercial, (laughs) but I don't mind. We have definitely found a solution and we have certainly great experience with the CyberGerics guys. We've looked and we have used other options as well we have a a very good working relationship with CyberGerix. they do tick the boxes in terms of integration with our program and they do cover all of those elements we've touched on Um, so we've certainly had really good experience we use them as a core part of our security framework they are a service they are a, a tool and you know probably heard this from lots of different people you can't just rely on a tool or service you do need that framework so you still need to start with the basics you need to start with a top-down business level approach it needs to be linked to standards to your organizational policies you need to choose a framework a security framework like nist or iso or something similar and it needs to be able to be integrated into that framework. So we use Directs as just one of many tools in terms of our framework. In some cases, we do our own bespoke assessments, especially where there's specific context around our organization and the supplier. So if there's, for instance, a platform that we're relying on a supplier to stand up or build for us, then we're going to have some architectural requirements, we're going to want to understand some very specific technical controls, so there will always be other elements outside of that typical tool and service. You need to look at what you want to achieve outside of your overall third-party risk management program. Most organisations, as I said, don't have the capacity or capability or budget to be able to meet that challenge without some sort of assistance. You need to understand what can you do with the skills and the people that you have versus what's out there that you can leverage? What's cost effective? Is there a a service that is matured, that has support, that has some knowledge that can bring to your program that you can then leverage. So it's important that you understand what options there are out there. Make sure that you align to a recognized methodology, make sure those services are able to be integrated and also aligned to those recognized uh, methodologies don't forget to do due diligence on them as well. So, you know, obviously we've gone through that process. We do due diligence and we use CyberDirects to do many of our assessments and provide our intelligence. Uh, We're also going to ask them the same sort of questions ourselves. We rely on them so heavily. So obviously you need to put them through that process as well. Well, thank you, Scott. I mean, this has been fascinating because I
0: I think third-party risk management is something that, broaches from time to time in the CISO, but normally more is a workflow interruption. As I said, this is what happens with me when somebody says, hey, we're trying to close a deal and we need this, or we're bidding this contract and we need this form filled out. But what you're saying then is that there are vendors out there that provide that infrastructure. And in a way, I kind of like that idea because then what we uh, can move toward is having a standards based repository of risk rating information relative to third parties so that one can do the due diligence and, for example, as a CISO, even be part of a pursuit team to say, hey, we're looking at doing this type of business or working with these companies. What do you foresee as a potential risk? And if there's enough of that information out there and it's shareable, then it really goes a long way toward helping the CISO be part of the business team, which is ultimately where the C comes into in that chief role is that you're part of the leadership team and not simply uh, a technical expert. You know, we could probably go on and talk all night on this and uh, or all morning for you, actually. We've got about a 14-hour time difference. I do thank you for your time. This has been absolutely fascinating. And uh, for folks who are listening in, I want to thank you for being a subscriber to the CISO Tradecraft podcast. As always, we encourage you to follow us. You can either track us on LinkedIn or go to our CISOTradecraft.com website and get the latest of the episodes. I think for today, that should wrap it up. Uh, this is G. Mark Hardy, along with my uh, special guest, Scott Fairbrother. Thank you very much. And uh, till next time, stay safe out there.